I'm here with John, and today we're going to talk about the concluding unscientific postscript. Uh, the last of his intended works, what, what it turned out not to be his last work. Uh, and it is, you know, the whole thing is ironic uh, the, that he's making a play. I, the unscientific, I assume. Is that a play off of uh, Hegel, John? Well, it is. It's a... It's just a playoff philosophy in general. And so everybody is, wants to be scientific, and uh, he's he's uh, going to be unscientific. Uh, and as we get into it, I think he means this, even though it's uh, ironic or he's he's uh, being comical here. He, in, his, in other sense, he's he's quite serious that the scientific, I assume, he would relate to objectivity. Mm-hmm. And so what he's doing is has nothing to do with objectivity, uh, but with human subjectivity. And the it's a postscript to the philosophical investigations, right? Yes, the philosophical investigations or fragments or sometimes even translated as philosophical crumbs. Which, uh, again, is ironic because the postscript is much longer than the original work that he calls a pamphlet and to which it's attached. About six times longer. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so we're, uh, uh, we're in for perhaps, uh, would you say this, uh, how would you compare this then to the other pseudonymous works and then to the non-pseudonymous work? Where would you place the unscientific postscript? Yeah, I think that he really did mean for this to be his last work in the sense that it's a conclusion to all the pseudonymous works. And throughout the postscript, he will engage the other pseudonymous works. And um, I think he's bringing the ideas that are begun there to a conclusion to where the view of his work was to lead somebody to a moment where they would have to decide whether or not they were going to be a Christian. And I think that he envisioned the postscript as completing that project. And what he means by being a Christian, of course, that's the whole postscript, but maybe we can uh, put up front here that, and, and and correct me here. I, I you know I tend to uh, see what he's doing. He's he's almost trying to create a vocabulary or breakthrough in uh, Christianity of his day, and I think that it still characterizes the Christianity of our day. That uh, truth then is uh, a, a a kind of you know, he talks about systematizing it, you know, stacking it up or uh, that you can. Uh, and, and, of course, his point is that Christianity is not a truth of that sort. It's not a truth uh, that uh, on the order of, uh, you know, facts about the world, but it's a truth uh, of uh, the relating to the truth. It's truth that uh, of subjectivity or I'm not doing a very good job there. How would you define uh, his notion of truth in the postscript? 
Yeah, I think this is the topic of subjectivity and objectivity, and he doesn't necessarily think that there is no such thing as an objective truth. He just simply doesn't think that that would do any person who is existing very much good. Um, and so he, the first part of the book, which is labeled part one, but is actually very short, is on the objective truth of Christianity. And his point there is that whether or not we can study the Bible historically or think about Christianity, Christianity historically is only a small aspect of what it means to be a Christian. Of course, in his day and age, that had been taken to be everything. So Christianity was very much limited to an academic study of Christianity where uh, you're seeing the beginnings of the historical critical method. For Kierkegaard, though, even if you would know how to parse all of the verbs in Scripture and you would know all the historical context of each book and the authorship, you would still not be a Christian. And so that's missing the point of what the Bible is saying is the truth. Um, and so for him, subjectivity is the human subject relating to ultimate truth, which of course is God, and this is the truth of Christianity. So the truth of Christianity isn't whether or not it is true or false, but the truth that has to be lived out. I just, uh, this morning I did, uh, you know, the, my blog on uh, the... Uh, uh, his, sickness his, unto death. Yeah, sickness unto death. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and and in a sense, the sickness unto death is a is a nice uh, preparation for what he's doing in the postscript. Maybe what he's doing throughout. But it it uh, if you're familiar a little bit with psychoanalytic work, uh, especially in sickness unto death, that he's describing things. You know, if you're, I think people get frustrated with him. And even think that maybe he's just joking sometimes mm -hmm. uh, in talking about the relation of you know the this uh, uh, the idea of relating the self to the self and well actually though if you read that you know he talks about this relation with the self and then a third term and and he's going to describe this uh, antagonistic relation in terms of despair. And despair then is is to recognize this kind of antagonistic internal relationship. Well, that's precisely what you get in a Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis. You know, you have the the self or the I or the ego, and then the ego relating itself to the self, uh, the the superego or the law. And then the relation between those two categories, this is right out of Paul, uh, you know, the, the, the I and the law of the mind, the, the body. Uh, then the third term is, in fact, that which does not appear, uh, the body of death or uh, in Lacan, the death drive. And if you, you know, what, what, uh, Kierkegaard is saying in the uh, postscript, and this is I, I thought was very interesting that he says that the the deception or a lie uh, is just as uh, uh, it, uh, it it has the same infinite possibility as the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the uh, what when you displace God, and I think that's what he's describing in despair in both the uh, the postscript and in the sickness unto death. That the absence of God is still an eternal absence. And so what the existing individual is doing, he's you're always relating yourself to eternity, but in a uh, you know, an aesthetic or ethical understanding, the despair there uh is a negative relation to eternity. Now maybe I've misstated it in, in tying it to the ethical and the aesthetic. Well it it can't be quite true for Kierkegaard because for him despair is not an entirely negative category. So in um even the discourses, which of course are not pseudonymous, he'll talk about despairing and despairing as a necessary act that one does before faith. This also in um in um the repetition and in uh-huh. the philosophical fragments so for Kierkegaard, despair isn't displacing God so much as despair is recognizing that the world is worthless and nothing. And so the problem is some people in that despair will seek some sort of repetition, which is what um, the character in repetition does. Of course, it's a false repetition because the repetition is impossible. But the other option for one in despair is to, uh, he says, relinquish the finite and then gain infinity. And this is what the Knight of Faith does for Kierkegaard. He uses the Knight of Faith in several of his works. So while I think there's certainly a connection to what you're saying in psychoanalysis, I'm not for sure if the terms would work uh, just you know in a one-to-one comparison. Well, yeah, even even the the turn to repetition, of course, it's precisely in recognizing uh, negativity or the antagonistic relationship within the self that Freud and Lacan hit upon the compulsion to repeat. Now, I'm never quite sure, you know, uh, in fact, Kierkegaard seems to describe repetition in a very philosophical way, interestingly, you know, that he's trying to to recreate something. Um, but, of course, in a psychoanalytic frame, repetition is descriptive of the death drive. It is descriptive of the first-order experience, I think, of despair. Uh, the compulsion to repeat, you know, you, you, uh, you repeat the same thing over and over with the attempt at a, at a different outcome. Uh, it you know, there that is the problem, and what what you're in the compulsion to repeat it is in Lacanian terms the death drive is the attempt to escape the death drive. Uh, I think that's not too far from what you know Kierkegaard is describing human activity uh, as a kind of uh, you know working or busyness as a kind of. Uh, facade, you know, an attempt to to obscure the reality of despair. So you're right that to to be able to 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 have despair, to to recognize despair, uh, seems for Kierkegaard step one 
in arriving at truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but most people then don't uh, that just the uh, the reality of their situation. And partly, maybe maybe we need to talk about this a little bit. The the objective mode, by its very definition, and this seems to be what Kierkegaard is trying to do. That Christianity, as he has it, Christendom, the the truth of Christendom, functions at a completely objective level, in which the truths of Christianity could be all lined up. But they never address a person psychologically, and I, I, I'm, I'm using a word here. I don't know if if Kierkegaard uses it, but it seems like his term subjectivity. Wouldn't you say he's really talking about uh, human psychology or human interiority? Tell me I'm wrong there. Well, I, I mean, I think it definitely hits on that, but. He may be more, uh, the later phenomenological thinkers may have more of a reference point in Kierkegaard. So he, you know, in the first part of concluding on scientific postscript, he's talking about objectivity. He is talking about the failure to realize that if one, a thinking person, attempts to think this system, which is the Hegelian system, and then make Christianity match that, or even approach existence in that way. And that's really the topic in that part of the book, that they're failing to realize they are an existing human subject in that system. And so they don't have a vantage point that would allow them to systematize or to come at the topic of existence from a systematic perspective, Um, but rather it's going to have to be a perspective from the life that is lived. Now, at that point, subjectivity is definitely going to include um, a psychological aspect. And even as I use the term psychological, I realize there's a danger there. In In other words, even in psychologizing it, there is still the danger of not making the passage into a first-order experience or subjectivity. In other words, you could still, at a psychoanalytic level, in fact, I think that's the problem. That that would be why I would say that Kierkegaard goes beyond Lacan, Freud, Zizek, is that for each of these guys, they're dealing in a realm that I don't know that they ever pass from objectivity to subjectivity in the way that Kierkegaard wants us to as Christians. That is that even even you know in Zizek talking about uh, human subjectivity, the human subject, he is still broken that subject down into you know a kind of three tripartite mechanical moving parts uh, that in in the end you can't you can never escape. So I recognize that in a sense Kierkegaard is already doing something better. He's taking us to a place uh, that I'm not sure a secular psychoanalysis can take us. But mm-hmm. I also think that that what he's feeling that is missing then from Christendom and that he's aiming at, in, maybe in, in, in many of his works, but uh, in the unscientific postscript, is to then deliver us uh, to a, a realm in which truth 
uh, has to do with an actually existing, ongoing, you know, experiential. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Now, a question that he raises in the book is, um, is it more difficult for a Christian to become a Christian? <laughs> or is it even possible for a Christian to become a Christian than one who has converted to Christianity? And of course, what he deals with is the topic of infant baptism. So he will over and again repeat himself that he doesn't have any theological problem with infant baptism, but as practically speaking in Denmark, what has happened is that your baptismal certificate is also your certificate of citizenship. And so everybody is a Christian. Well, how can you convince anybody to become a Christian if they already are one? And for for him, then, Christianity means making this leap into a religious sphere of existence, which would uh, take God as its sole concern, a life ordered towards God, and then to live that life through divine assistance by faith. And this is the type of life that, you know, when faced with despair, was not overcome with despair, but was able to realize that, um, you know, the finite, this world, uh, is something that is not ultimate. There is something that has to be outside of the system of existence that all things relate to and take their shape and form and being from that being God, which he calls in other places making the movements of eternity. And so this is how the individual subject then has an eternal happiness in existence. And for him, existence is always within time or it's a temporal existence. So he won't, he would not say that God exists because he's saying that God is outside of time. Of course, he thinks God is actually a real being. Um, but we have to have this eternal happiness that is a, you know, transcends existence, and we are shaped by it, and our lives are oriented to it. And this is Christianity for Kierkegaard. And I, and I think the I mean he's dealing with you know your, your, the, what's in the background here is the Cartesian cogito, you know at one level uh, you know Zizek for example is still doing he still consider, considers himself a Cartesian, not in any kind of modernist sense that you know there's a legitimacy there, but the idea of the thinking thing and the I I noticed in the in the postscript that that. Kierkegaard uses language very similar to what Kant uses in talking about this thinking thing. That is, that the the uh, barrier that needs to be penetrated or passed through. It's a very, it's not an easy thing to do to pass from objectivity to subjectivity, because you know, well, what's more subjective than the the I think, therefore I am? That seems you know you're at the deep. Well, I think for Kierkegaard, he'd say, no, you're still dealing and you're reducing even the I there to a thinking thing, and you've not passed then into an actually existing subject. Mm-hmm. And that, that form of thought is just, we're saturated in that form of thought. And that seems to be, and uh, again, you can correct me, but... That seems to be what he's trying to rescue us from, a form of thinking uh, that 
uh, is we kind of live and move and have our being in this thing, and he's trying to create an al- or at least point us toward an alternative form of thought. Yeah, absolutely. He um, definitely, he even mentions Descartes and the Cogito within the postscript and following the notes that are that accompany the Hong edition, you can see how that traces actually back to Kant through Haman and others. Uh, so he's definitely taking leave from that way of thinking. And he does this specifically when he starts describing what he'll call religiousness B or dialectical religiousness. And religiousness B is specifically Christian, and it is so because it uh, doesn't take Christianity to be a communication of knowledge, but rather a communication of existence. And so it's by faith that um, this way of existing is communicated to the individual. And religiousness B is the end point for Kierkegaard. This is Christianity, strictly speaking, according to the postscript. So that's according to the Johannes Climacus, who is the pseudonym there. And he's an interesting pseudonym because Kierkegaard will use him and one other pseudonym, Johannes Anticlimacus, to locate himself. And he says he's in between these two pseudonyms. So Johannes Climacus doesn't claim to be a Christian. He claims to be a humorist. And for Kierkegaard, that must mean something in between the ethical sphere of existence and the religious sphere of existence. But throughout the postscript, especially towards the end, Johannes Climacus begins to say things that he himself is saying only a Christian could know. So that becomes rather tricky to interpret the pseudonym. Yeah, run down for us a little bit because he he, he does a lot with the humorist and, and the idea of humor. Uh, why do you think that plays such a key role? I think um, specifically where he's, Johannes Climacus calls himself a humorist in the postscript is in his little aside at the end that he does right before Kierkegaard went ahead and wrote explaining that he's actually the author behind the pseudonyms. But it would only be a humorist who would be able to look at, or somebody who, by the use of humor, could examine something like the Hegelian system in the 19th century and say, well, perhaps this whole thing's just misdirected. And he does that through jokes. Uh, Quite literally, at one point, he expresses how it may be dangerous to even enter philosophical discussion with a Hegelian philosopher, because as a Hegelian philosopher, one who has no presuppositions and thinks that they can contemplate the system of existence, they themselves might not be an existing subject. So um, he's constantly poking fun at Hegelianism, in particular throughout the postscript. And I think that's his way of showing that perhaps uh, the system itself, or the Hegelian philosophy, is just a bit pompous, a bit arrogant, and hasn't quite done all that it promises. So we could go back to more fundamental beliefs like Christianity. I mean, you know, there, the, he at one point I can't remember that. You know, it's almost like uh, you couldn't tell a human being from uh, some alien or some, you know, a machine, or and and of course that's that. Uh, is uh, precisely, 
you know, if you think of uh, Zizek does a whole thing on the Blade Runner, uh, where the, you, you know, the whole movie is about replicants and, you know, the Tyrell Corporation is uh, uh, manufacturing these lookalikes, these human beings that look and, you know, they have, have and, and uh, in the, the movie, the, you know, the detective that is tracing down these runaway replicants, uh, one of them uses the cogito. She says, I think, therefore I am. And then she, she begins to describe her memories. And, and uh, uh, he says, well, yes, but that's all been built into your software. Uh, and, of course, the irony is at the end of the movie, even the detective himself turns out to be a replicant. And that's what Kierkegaard seems to be driving at, is that in this one form of thought, and by the way, Zizek, I don't think, ever has a, for him, there's never really a, a, a move from being, you know, what's the difference between a replicant and a human being? <laughs> I don't think he could say, oh, I, I, he, he would say there is no difference. That is that even our most private thoughts are, you know, like so much software that has been built into us. And it seems like what Kierkegaard is striving at is that is the reality of our humanness, and that it 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 it, it lies not in, uh, you know, he says it's not just that uh, we arrive at the truth, but it's how we ri- arrive at the truth, and the how is already part of the truth. Yes. Yes. And that seems significant because what he's talking about is just uh, the, uh, I think, trying to break through and talk about what would be the difference between a human being and something that's not human. Yeah, in the end, well, yeah, I think that's right. Um, the, uh, The book itself is contemplating what does it mean to be a human in existence and of course, where it takes you is that ultimately that means to be a Christian. So, um, what does that mean for those who aren't Christian or for Kierkegaard? What does that mean for the society that he's living in? Well, he does have um, optimistic. Is he's he has a hopeful view of his society. He is writing because he thinks that he can convince people to re-examine themselves and to become Christians. So he he isn't just pessimistic about this. And he even writes, uh, as you notice, he writes from the perspective sometimes of an aesthetic person, sometimes from an ethical person. So he realizes that people really do inhabit this type of sphere of existence or inhabit this way of life that is certainly missing what it means to even be a real human in existence, but he has compassion towards um, people in those positions. And so for him, I think that the problem with the, with the aesthetic, this is interesting because you were talking about memory a moment ago with the aesthetic, he talks about being able to remember and forget and how that's important to the aesthetic lifestyle because, um, if you remember too much, you might actually become passionate about something. So you have to be able to forget your interest in something before you become passionate. Uh, In another work of Kierkegaard, after the fragments, it's a literary review on a book, and it's called The Two Ages. He talks about how 
the age that he lives in is an age without passion, meaning people are unable to commit to something and live in such a way that their lives are ordered around it. And if we go back to the postscript and examine how he's describing the age that he's living in, it's that everybody is concerned with thinking or high ideals. This is He's living through the golden age of Denmark as far as like literary culture is concerned. And so he sees a culture that is at its peak as far as output of art, knowledge, philosophy, whatever that might be. And he says the problem is the things that are being dwelt on and contemplated are completely wrong. In other words, um, it's the aesthetic principle. What will make my life better? Or how can I have the most comfortable life? It, or it's the ethical principle. What can I do in existence? But never have people really been able to understand the world in such a way where they're asking, well, what does God have for me? And how will that shape my life in the shape of an eternal happiness so that I can actually exist in the here and now? And that's for him what culminates in Christianity. Yeah, that's the uh, I, the opening. I guess he's sitting and uh, he's thinking, well, how you know that that people become great, they become famous because they make life easier for others. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, <laughs> well, I'm probably I'm probably not uh, clever enough to to make life easier. But he's but he says maybe I could la- make life more difficult. Yes, yeah, yeah. What a concept. So. <laughs> And, and of course, the the idea is, I mean, I mean, that's the thing that Kierkegaard is doing. In a, in a in a sense that, I think that people may may lose patience with him, because what he's talking about, he's trying to penetrate to a realm uh, that is not easy for us to grasp. Not because it's far from us, but in fact because it's immediate to us. It's part of our subjectivity. And he's trying, I think, for us to turn around and catch a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror. Uh, you know, this is his language of, of even hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what, how does Scripture function for us? Well, it, the, there he uses the language of uh, the book of James, that uh, maybe we can capture an image of ourselves in the mirror of the Word. I, yeah. I know you, you, you may have something to say about the hermeneutics, or his uh, he, he touches on that a bit in the postscript. Yeah, and again, um, I think that what he would say about the hermeneutics that are being practiced in the university at Denmark during his day is uh, a way, of, or biblical hermeneutics, is a way of reading the Bible that takes the Bible as a book that may even have accurate historical knowledge or even accurate knowledge as pertaining to theological topics. But the problem is it's always about what knowledge can the can Scripture communicate to the exegete. Whereas for Kierkegaard, he said, if you actually understood Scripture, it's really not trying to just communicate knowledge to you at all, but it's uh, attempting to make you a part of the story in such a way where you have to grapple with your own existence so that you become Abraham. You become the one at the moment of faith. You have to um, live life in such a way that you're going to decide whether or not you're going to be religious and abide by what God says and suspend the ethical. 
Um, or, I mean, before that even, are you going to be the esthete who lives for oneself but isn't really living at all and uh, just can't even choose? Scripture forces us, or the truth of Scripture forces us to make decisions about ourselves and the way we see ourselves, uh, which I think correlates well with what he writes about the book of James. And so in terms of modern hermeneutics, that uh, maybe he's, he's pointing us before his time then to a theological or narrative hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, that that uh, these systems have certainly, you know, people that, are, uh, that you think of, uh, you know, Harawas or uh, McClendon or, or the, mm-hmm. the Van Hooser, they're, they're all readers of, of Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have gotten there uh, before most. I, I, uh, I guess I'm leaving out Balthazar, but uh, obviously Balthazar would have engaged. Uh, so that that he's driving us. He's he's uh, uh, he's a genius in the sense that he's he's ahead of his time. And I don't think uh, he he's almost uh, without a vocabulary. I think since Kierkegaard's day. We've developed a vocabulary that, but it's uh, that he's the one who's pointing us in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, th- you, I think of somebody even like N.T. Wright, who in his a big two-volume set on Paul, he's not just asking what does Paul mean, but the question is always related to what is Paul's point for the one who's going to follow Christ. And that's the way Kierkegaard would read scripture. And that's the that's the the, the thing that uh, you know that a theological hermeneutic or even a, a theological reading it it just does it just resonates in a way that you know the traditional commentator is going to tell us all the facts, but in some way that the, the whole point is missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think someone right, like Wright and others that have turned to a, a theological understanding, that 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 in some way I think is the end point. Uh, well, maybe I should ask you, what is the end point? What what is the what is the point of the concluding unscientific postscript? I think concisely, uh, the end point is that we would be confronted with our existence and confronted with the gospel in such a way that we have to make a decision, and that decision is either going to be a complete rejection or we're going to end up be, we're going to end up living our lives in such a way that we are constantly becoming Christian. That's how Kierkegaard describes himself. And what is, what is it I mean he, he, for Kierkegaard, of course, the existential decision, everything seems to rest upon that. Mm-hmm. Give us a, uh, you know, can you describe for us why is that such a necessary part of the passage for Kierkegaard? I think this uh, takes leave from Hegel in that Hegel and the Hegelians were almost describing a way that humans could be passive because uh, the truth of history was unfolding before them and they were at the end, so... Uh, they were about to have everything unfold. The system of existence would be complete. So Hegel will say that there is no absolute either-or, because any dialectic, or at least the Hegelians of this day, I realize not every Hegelian reads Hegel this way, but the Hegelians in Denmark of Kierkegaard's day you know, did not believe in absolute either-ors. 
There is no decision then. Everything, every dialectic is only a supposed dialectic until it is a, there's a synthesis and then a new thing. So Kierkegaard's main point maybe throughout the entire pseudonymous works and perhaps even into the um, you know his named authorship is that, no, there really are either-or instances in life, and Christianity happens to be one of those. Are you going to be a Christian or not? In other words, being a Dane isn't being a Christian, so you have to do something about this. But even before that, he's asking the question, are you going to be a human who actually exists as a subject or not? That's a decision that you have to make. It doesn't work itself. It does not work itself out for you. So Hegelianism may be just a type of a uh, understanding that allows one uh, to give himself over completely to passivity or to making no choices, no mm-hmm. decisions, because there are no decisions to be made, because there's only thesis, antithesis, uh, that uh, a contradiction or or a, a, a difference is, in fact, always going to be resolved in, so through some sort of synthesis. And one is just carried along by history and mm-hmm. is a particle in, in the, the vast stream. It's very Eastern in that sense. I, I've always, and even to say East-West, of course, is a kind of false uh, <laughs> differentiation. I don't think there really is a huge difference in, in what's being described. And so the, the idea is that if, if there is uh, evil, and Kierkegaard is going to talk about evil, uh, and there is good, then there is a choice to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, Kierkegaard is incensed that um, Hegel writes as prolifically as he does and never gets around to addressing ethics. And so he just sees that as a huge problem for Hegelian philosophy during his time. If you have a system of existence that doesn't include ethics, how should one live? Then perhaps the philosophy itself is worthless or we don't need it. We should just go about actually living. And that's his whole thing with abstraction too, isn't it? That the the abstract thinker doesn't need an ethic. Yes. Yeah. Because he'll talk about reflection and then he'll talk about, um, I always forget the terms that he uses exactly, but in other words, there's an immediate action after reflection or there's just reflection. And he would categorize the Hegelians of his day as being those who are just caught up in an existence, which is constantly reflecting. But if you're constantly in reflection, then you're actually never making any decisions. Uh, You're just reflecting on the data that is there. So um, Kierkegaard isn't asking us to be anti-intellectual or, you know, he never actually uses, uh, he talks about a leap a lot. He talks about faith a lot, but he never talks about a leap of faith because that's not what he's describing, a blind leap of faith or anything like that. But he does mean for sure that we have to make decisions that constitute a leap. In other words, there's no reflecting that will take us to the point where all of a sudden we become a new person. At some point, there's a decision that has to be made. Yeah, now, now, distinguish here for us, because uh, I know that some have said uh, that can, and and this goes against the whole notion of the postscript, can somebody who's not a Christian understand Christianity? 
Now, so Kierkegaard would say no, but we have to remember what he means by Christianity, that it's a form of existence. So um, he doesn't even think Christians fully understand Christianity. And that's why, um, as he'll write practicing Christianity later, he'll use another pseudonym to say, essentially, I've thought these things and I think they're right, but I'm not quite there yet with the way that I exist. So these things are above me. And that's how uh, he approaches scripture as well, that we're constantly engaging ideas and truth that is above us that we enter into as we exist in it. So that he, he isn't making really any judgments on what we might know and what we might not know, but he is certainly making a judgment on the way we exist. And if this truth has become a subjective truth for us in the sense that it's one that we live out and has changed who we are. And in that sense, um, the, the higher always can understand the lower. So the religious can understand what it means to exist as ethical, but somebody existing as ethical can't understand what it would mean to actually be a Christian, though they might be able to uh, know what it might take. And so in the philosophical fragments, the character of Johannes Climacus is more vague to us than by the time we get through the postscript. And this is how he talks. He's not a Christian. He knows that he's not a Christian, but he's contemplating what must be true about Christianity from the standpoint of the ethical. Now, by the end of the postscript, we're told, you know, he's a humorist or he's grown this the reflecting that he's doing is forcing him to make decisions. And he seems to know a lot more in the postscript than he did in the fragments. But we're still left not really knowing what he's decided to do. You know, I, the, the thing that the, the, the humorous part just keeps resonating. The, the, the Kierkegaard, I mean, we, we may look back and, and uh, miss the sociality or the, the, the just the yeah, Kierkegaard was, he loved people. He loved, he loved going mm-hmm. to parties. He was actually, we often think of him as kind of a lone individual, and I think there was that aspect to him. Uh, but I think he's someone who, you know, I, I was thinking of James Barr's uh, fundamentalism. And in the final chapter of Barr's uh, book on fundamentalism, he's writing about Karl, or the end of fundamentalism. He's writing about Karl Barth, and he, the chapter's entitled The Laughing Bart. And mm-hmm. His point is that Bart was Bart was a humorist. Bart was a funny guy. Uh, mm-hmm. The the people that attended his classes uh, that he engaged them through humor, and it seems like that in a sense Kierkegaard's whole work is this kind of humorous approach to a subject that we understand humor and humor touches us in a way uh, maybe maybe not. You know, uh, maybe it's falls short, perhaps, of a full-blown Christianity. But it seems almost like that he's in the mode of the humorist in trying to get us to uh, uh, Christianity B or Christian B. Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think humor in that sense and the way that it's employed in this book is that it cuts through all those false systems that promise some type of existence but cannot deliver. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, the, the, what is humor? Humor is something you, know, you, you, uh, everybody looks at something in, in, a, in one fashion, and the humorist comes along and kind of deflates it entirely mm-hmm. 
by by intersecting it in a way or talking about it from a perspective that that those who are dead serious in fact it would not have occurred to them and yes. so yeah. in a sense christianity is this uh is this joke now that's obviously <laughs> kind of <laughs> but it cuts in on us it it hits us in a way uh, and, and that seems to be what Kierkegaard is trying to do uh, with his, uh, uh, you know, people are used to operating in an objective mode. Humor immediately shifts that up uh, and is trying to touch us or hit us in a, in a fashion that delivers us then uh, to subjectivity. Yeah, I think so. But, uh it cuts through all the false ways of existence. It, in one way, Christianity mocks the what the world would take to be most powerful in such a way that it delivers true existence for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Now, let's uh, in, in kind of bringing this to a conclusion. Tell us, tell us what. In fact, Kierkegaard meant this to be the end, right? Yes. But it's not. No, this was going to be the end. And he was, um, from what we can tell of his journals, going to become a pastor in a country church. And that's what he was going to do for the rest of his life. But what happens is he gets into an argument um, with a Corsair, which is like a, you know, a type of paper that lampoons people and, you know, sort of a humor paper, actually. But he and the editor get into a battle in ink. And this really is hurtful for Kierkegaard in the sense that most of the people who can't, don't really understand the references and don't understand the more refined humor of the Corsair end up just mocking Kierkegaard relentlessly everywhere he goes. And um, I think that he he realizes, or he thinks anyway, that people have completely missed the point of his work. And so they haven't been able to understand the pseudonymous works. They're too difficult. And that draws him into continuing to write. Although it is interesting that the very next thing that he writes is just a book review. And so I think somewhere he writes that he still hasn't become an author yet because he's just written a review. He actually hasn't written a book. Um, but he continues also to publish discourses, which um, is his way of publishing sermons that aren't sermons because he says he doesn't have a license to preach. So he doesn't have the authority to write a sermon and publish it. But he publishes these discourses, which are sermons. And then we'll end up writing the second half of his authorship. Which is uh, largely non-pseudonymous, right? Yes. And even when it is, the pseudonyms, um, they work in a different way. In other words, he's not saying in the way he was before, here's some opinions that I don't hold at all. And... Um, but this is helpful for you to come to my point of view, which is, I think, what he's doing in the pseudonymous authorship. And the non-pseudonymous authorship, or the later pseudonymous authorship, uh, especially Sickness Unto Death and Practicing Christianity, originally, I think he writes the pseudonym down on the book on his way to the publisher. So he was planning on publishing them under his own name. And it's a last-minute decision. And it's really somewhat out of a humility on his part, thinking that, 
perhaps he hasn't quite understood everything that he's written or hasn't understood it as a way of existing, in other words. Let me bring this to, uh, you know, the, the uh, I'm thinking here, what a, for uh, posterity, and maybe for Kierkegaard himself, wouldn't it have been something of a tragedy if we had lost Soren Kierkegaard to the pastorate? <laughs> it may be for us, yes. How about for he him? He might have done a lot of good for somebody. Uh, yeah, I think the second half of his work is crucial, especially crucial for people who want to read Kierkegaard from the vantage point that all of his works are leading us to the religious perspective. Because, uh, I mean, as you know, people do not always read Kierkegaard from, when I say religious, I mean his his term, religious perspective. Some people read him as nothing more than an ironist, somebody who's mocking his day. And so that's the atheist existentialists that come later and like Kierkegaard. Uh, Heidegger, by and large, rips off Kierkegaard's work without citing him. <laughs> and so there's a lot of parallels in Heidegger to what Kierkegaard is doing as well. So people will make Kierkegaard their own, but I think the second authorship makes it clear what Kierkegaard's own thoughts about what he had written are. I mean, he, he had very little, you know, the, for him, there was only the Danish church. And he really, there there was no alternative for him. But you think about him sitting there at the opening scene of the unscientific postscript he's you know lighting one cigar after another mm. and thinking about well what what could he contribute and of course what he's contributing uh is this unique life that if it had been consumed uh in the the religiosity of his day uh he had just become another preacher another Part, you know, part of the hierarchy of the Danish church, made a good living. You know, the, the, the interesting thing here is, I, th I suppose he's selling some books, but in no way is he making a living. And yet, yeah. uh, the value of his life for us and perhaps for himself, and I'm trying to draw a lesson here for all of us, is that he did not spend his time in the in those sorts of pursuits that we would normally spend our time in, uh, you know, that even in the church, even even in the ministry, even in a pastorate, that in fact, uh, that in in a sense, that would have uh, in in some way have been a corruption. Of what uh, 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 of what he's given us and, and of who he is, and I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, is it the same in, in the same way? Uh, if we are in the pursuit of these things and we imagine that we can in some way enter into, uh, you know, a passive, organized, structured institution. And, sir, and, and, and of course, what you get there are the immediate benefits. You get the, you get money, you get position. Uh, but 
the question is, would he have, you know, it, it, uh, have sold out? And do we sell ourselves out uh, when we imagine that that's the place that significance is to be found? Perhaps so. I don't. He definitely he came at that issue. Um, you know, one of the reasons he thought that he would join the clergy was so that his attacks on the church would be also an attack on himself. So I don't think for Kierkegaard there was ever the temptation to collude with the powers that be. I think he knew his mind and he knew what he thought was true to Christianity and he was going to speak up regardless. But he was also the type of person that was always willing to suffer the consequences, whatever that may be. And he would have rather had his attack on the church include him as an individual, because I don't think that he felt guiltless than be one who stood outside of that system. So he, yeah, the whole criticism is one that, that he, it doesn't, it's not like he counts himself out of it. Yeah, and I think that that's actually key to the idea of the postscript, too, because this is what he's blaming the Hegelians of doing, of imagining that they can, they're, they've come up with a system that's supposed to understand everything and the meaning of human existence, but they don't picture themselves as a part of the system. Because, you know, of course, part of that Hegelian system is that Christianity is sort of this lesser thing, and thank goodness philosophy has come along to... You know, be God's truth for the high-minded. Christianity is for the simple, and that incenses Kierkegaard. And um, I, I don't think he even likes the approach, the idea that you could stand outside of a system that you are critiquing or criticizing. One way or course, he, he mentions that, that there is this leveling aspect to Christianity, yeah. well, you know what the the intellectuals or the academicians or they're they're always trying to create a you know an elite kind of group. And his yes. point is that well, there's nothing elitist about this thing because anybody can do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's certainly the case that and maybe one more one more becomes ensconed and uh, it you know entranced with. Uh, a system that it's harder to break out of it. That, you know, that's the thing that we're talking about here is that Christianity, in quotes, is an obstacle to becoming mm -hmm. a Christian. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and so he, he, the whole thing, he's broken through to something uh, uh, that he, he's wanting to share. He's wanting other people to to experience. Uh, but it's, it's, it, it precisely, you know, it's that, it's that kind of, uh, no man's land for him anyway. There was only the organized state church there. It was only Christendom. Uh, and maybe for us though, he's, he's pointed beyond that. Yeah, I think so. He certainly, uh, was a remarkable thinker for his context and time. John, this has been fun. Is there, uh, any final thoughts? Have we left something out of the concluding unscientific postscript? I think just to tell people to go read it. <laughs> okay, all six hundred. All right, this has been this has been fun. Let's. Uh, uh, I think uh, 
uh, we'll continue some with uh, Kirk Boyer. Uh, let's do something with the uh, the uh, the final works, the final stage.